KHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us this morning John Pucci, who is the former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Springfield, longtime criminal defense lawyer as well. Uh, I wonder, Dan, do you think we could play John's walk-up music or get that ready for at least the next segment for the end of this one? We'll see if I can find it. Okay, because John, I can see John on Skype and he's just looking a little disappointed that he didn't have his, you know, his... The, the whole the whole ambiance of his of his well, introduction. Well, I could sing it. I fought the law and the law won. <laughs> I fought the law and the law won. Not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Um, uh, not great, but not bad. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. John is with us today because we have him on regularly, of course, but because there is an article and a news story that I want to share. It's in all of the uh, media outlets today. Let's look at the one from Heather Cox Richardson. I'm going to quote it. This morning, CBS News cameras captured on video the site of former President Trump's lawyers entering the Department of Justice. Shortly after their two-hour meeting ended, a message appeared on the Trump-affiliated social media site, Truth Social, in all caps, all caps, How can DOJ possibly charge me who did nothing wrong when no other presidents, misspelled, were charged when Joe Biden won't be charged for anything, including the fact he has 1,850 boxes, much as of it classified, and some dating back to his Senate day when even Democrat senators are shocked. Also, President Clinton had documents and one in court. Crooked Hillary deleted 33,000 emails, many classified, and wasn't even close to being charged. Only Trump, the greatest witch hunt of all times. So Heather Cock Richardson goes on to say, it appears there is reason to suspect Trump's lawyers delivered to the former president bad news about Trump's refusal to return to the government, that is, to the American people, the classified documents he stole when he left the White House. John Pucci. I think it strikes a lot of people as kind of odd that the president's lawyers uh, contact the Department of Justice and the lawyers they know are investigating them and say, hi, can we have, can we meet? But I think you're going to be able to give us some perspective on this kind of a protocol, which is actually not all that unusual. So help us understand this. Defense lawyers getting in touch with prosecutors before there's an indictment. How does that work and why does it work? Okay, so a little, just a little bit of background, which was, which is I was a federal prosecutor for 10 years. And so I was the person, a, one of the many, many, many prosecutors in the country to whom defense attorneys in what's complex white collar cases came to plead their case before it might be indicted. And since leaving the government for the last 30 years, I've been on the defense side where I'm the one going in and pleading with the government not to indict my clients. So this is how it works. In a case like this, after a search warrant, which discloses in full bloom that there's an investigation relating to uh, Trump in play, 
Uh, it's no mystery. It's out of the box. It's a fact of life. They went to a judge. They got a search warrant. They searched his his properties, his bedrooms, everything. And let me interrupt. Let me interrupt. And to be clear, this is all about the documents and the classified documents that he had at Mar-a-Lago. We're not talking about January sixth. We're not talking about uh, uh, payoffs to porn stars. We're talking about the documents at Mar-a-Lago. Yes. Correct. Okay. Correct. So the so Trump's lawyers know there's an investigation. The search warrant's been executed, and that leads to a series of sm smaller conversations. The conversations are between the defense attorneys and the and the line prosecutors who are running, who got the search warrant, who oversaw the search warrant process. And those discussions are uh, professional, typically very professional exchanges about what is the what are the charges, what are you looking at, what can you tell us uh, from the defense side, and the government being pretty closed-lipped uh, and says typically we'll let you know when we're ready to talk to you. Uh, maybe there'll be a charge, maybe there won't, but we'll listen to you. If we're going to ever bring a charge, we will meet with you and listen to your side so that we can consider it and calculate it in, in deciding whether to bring charges or not. The, the, the feds then, the prosecutors then go into the grand jury process, which is like a dark room. It's dark to public disclosure. It's dark to the dark to the uh, to Trump's lawyers, although they know they learn witnesses are going, witnesses are telling them they were called, they learn from the media, the press uh, uh, grand jury subpoenas have been issued. So they're tracking the, the, the investigation. They're having smaller conversations with the government about what the case is about and uh, discussions about privilege and things like that. But it all ends with, it culminates in this decision. If the government has decided it intends to proceed with indicting the defendant, Trump. Then it notifies Trump's lawyers, we're prepared to meet with you and have you can have your final authoritative uh, say as to whether or not we should bring charges. That's one place it might go, and it did in this case. The other is if the government at the end of the investigation decides we can't put the case together, it's a weak case, there may be other reasons, maybe people died, maybe they couldn't get all the evidence they thought. There may be a, a lot of reasons. The government will simply call, literally a phone call, and say to Trump's lawyers, we're declining the case, it's over. But in this instance, it went the other route, which is there was some conversation in which the government prosecutors invited Trump's lawyers in to present to them why they should not, the government should not indict Donald Trump. And importantly, Jack Smith, by all reports, who's the top dog in this whole uh, prosecution team, the special prosecutor appointed by Garland, the top dog is at this meeting by all accounts that took place earlier this week. So picture a room uh, in which Trump's lawyers, there's probably three of them there in the, the prosecutive team, there's probably the, the, the line prosecutors, there's probably five of them there and there's Jack Smith there and they're meeting and they're listening, they're having an exchange and the, and the Trump's lawyers are trying to persuade the government not to indict Donald Trump. And so they present a, a collection of arguments. They will no doubt say things like, other presidents who you're not gonna charge have been found to have taken documents that were uh, confidential, that were classified from the White House. They'll talk about the records found in Biden's uh, uh, 
offices and in, in Pence's offices, both of whom surrendered the records, did not obstruct in any way the recovery process. But in any event, they'll be talking about that. They'll be talking about weaknesses in the government's proof that Donald Trump, uh, arguably, he, he delegated downhill to people underneath him, subordinates, the record process, and, and, and he didn't really know the details of what was happening. And there'll be a, a collection of arguments in which they will try to persuade the government to not indict their client. Now, the government gets a big advantage from having this meeting too, because the government then learns any and all arguments which they might expect to have happened post-indictment at a trial in the defense of the case. So the government, it's possible, sometimes you as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, you sit there and you say, gee, I didn't really think about that. And you, mean, you uh, didn't think you didn't think of an argument about yeah. why the case shouldn't be brought or an argument about why the case was weak or an argument about yeah. how the proof won't be sufficient. Yeah, that really. Ha that really happens. Yes. Yes. So it's it's due diligence. It might be that in eight cases out of 10, you don't learn anything new. Um, but even if you're not learning anything new, it's confirming that what you know is the scope of the information that you have to consider. So you're not gonna be surprised at trial by witnesses that the defense hasn't presented most likely. You're not gonna be presented with documents and you're not gonna be, that you haven't seen, and you're not gonna be presented with arguments that you haven't fully considered. So it's very advantageous for the government, prosecutors to listen very carefully, very, very carefully to what the defense says so that they can, if even if they've decided they're going to indict, give them a chance, give them a chance. It's only fair to give a defendant a chance to present the arguments, but it's very advantageous for the government to hear everything the defense has to say so it can, it can incorporate that into the preparation of the charges in a trial. Okay, so it raises two questions for me, John, and take them in whichever order you like. First, it seems to me that what one aspect of this is that white collar crime get and potential defendants get an advantage that other defendants don't. Uh, when a client, my clients are picked up for or, or arrested for doing X, Y, or Z, no one says, hi, Mr. Newman, would you come into the DA's office and sit down? We'd like to talk to you about whether or not we want to charge your client or not. I mean, that just doesn't happen other than in white collar situations. And I'm wondering whether this says something about the system. That's, that's, let's start there. Well, it's certainly true that even in the situation of an arrest, the defense, a capable defense attorney will collect themselves, collect all the information, collect their arguments and go in and pitch the district attorney to defer charges altogether, dismiss the charges, or it can be an entryway to a plea agreement. <clears throat> I mean, that's the third thing that can happen. It can be a declination. Okay, the government's persuaded not to charge. It can be a, 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 a final decision to indict, or it can open a pathway to a resolution. In normal cases, this isn't normal. In normal cases in which the government says, okay, we, we think that there's a little bit more to the defense side of this case than we thought. Let's try to find a pathway forward and it opens up a, a space where negotiations resulting in a plea agreement can occur. So any of those three, all those three things are sort of in play. But after an arrest, after an arrest, you're right that the die is cast pretty much. It's very unusual for the government to walk away after an arrest, uh, particularly of one of your clients, Bill. 
<laughs> Thanks, John. Um, that's just a fact of life. But these white collar cases are different. Uh, money talks. They're extremely highfalutin lawyers that charge a tremendous amount of money for their work. It's worth it generally, although even if Trump often doesn't pay them. Uh, uh, and it is an advantage in a white collar case to be able to have a dialogue with the government, narrow the issues, even possibly persuade them not to charge. And I've had that happen. Uh, I've had a case or two or three or four in the last 30 years where they've walked away based on a presentation made made to the government. And that's an enormous victory. That's a victory, by the way. That is really a victory. Winning an acquittal at trial is not the, the same as that quality of victory. Because winning an acquittal at trial means the defendant has to go through the terrible process of trial, the stress on himself, the stress on the family, the incredible expense, and the risk of sitting there in a room and waiting for 12 strangers just to decide whether you're guilty or not. That's Even if you win at trial, you will never be the same. I, I, I tell the client, and I say this, this is, it's like major league surgery. It's like having a major surgery where you may, your, your condition may be cured, but you'll never forget it, and you'll never be able to shed all the stress that it caused you. Uh, so you can avoid that if you can if you can persuade them not to bring the charge at all. That's the victory, the real victory in the home run for defense counsel. A very double-edged sword, though, from the defense lawyers, from Trump's lawyers' point of view, who have just sat there and told the prosecutors all their defenses. They've just laid it all out, which they don't have to do, right? Uh, they definitely don't have to do that. They can sit, you know, they can sit and wait. Uh, in this really unusual case, of course, Trump talks so much that you can see the, the some of the crazy defenses that might be raised at trial and catch you off guard. For instance, his his claims, if I even think something is declassified, it's declassified as a document. Um, you know, he's exposed that on the air repeatedly. So that so the government lawyers go to town, they do their research, they write briefs, they're ready when that comes up to blow it out of the water. Uh, if they if it was thrown at them in a trial without notice, without having the chance to think about it, you know, it might be a more complicated picture for them. That doesn't actually make. Let me try this this way. It sounds crazy. But it's actually not totally crazy as a defense because the prosecution is going to have to prove intent and knowledge on Trump's part. And if Trump says, I thought it was declassified, not quite how he put it, but I thought it was and therefore it was, that actually is a defense, I think, even if he's wrong. It's a defense to the possession of the, it's a conceivable defense to the possession of the documents and, and firm it up a little bit. Let's say that he says, and one of my lawyers told me that. And I relied on my lawyer. So I hired, you know, this Northampton law firm of. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I hired a lawyer and here's the lawyer. And it may not have been right. I understand now and I regret accepting his advice, but I relied on it. It doesn't, however, avoid the obstruction charge, uh, which is really, I think, the, the meat of what's going to happen if there's a charge. It's going to be Trump's obstruction, knowing obstruction and refusal to return documents. Um, which is going to be a big part of any charge that's brought against him. And, and so that's a problem for him, big problem. We're speaking with John Pucci. This is our time, our segment called Crime and Punishment. We're going to continue the conversation after this. And I really want to get to this question of 
what is Trump facing now? And what is the government going to say? Well, listen, Trump may have done something wrong here, but so did Biden, so did Pence, uh, so did Clinton, so did and on and on and on. And what you have here is a difference in degree, not a difference in substance. And they're charging Trump. And isn't the government going to set itself up for Trump having that entire highway to travel down? We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door's open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair, Saturday, June 17th. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions, limited editions, art books, signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and ten more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns, Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney John Pucci. This is our time with John every month, Crime and Punishment. And we have been talking about the legal travails and the impending indictments, we think, of Donald Trump, specifically with regard to Mar-a-Lago. What I'd like to have your perspective on, John, is something that you have spoken to us about before, and that is the discretion of federal prosecutors. And what Trump is likely to be indicted for here, the possession of classified documents, the obstruction of justice in terms of the refusal to uh, return the documents, it's not all that different from 
other presidents and vice presidents having had and had for a long time in their possession classified documents improperly, illegally. Trump, well, here the claim, of course, is that he intentionally obstructed the return of those documents to the National Archives. But still, in the public mind, this is, I think, for a lot of people, a difference of degree, not in kind. Trump gets charged, the others don't, and Trump is given this wide highway to travel down saying, see, it is a witch hunt, they're after me, they didn't go after everyone else, and so on. That comes under the rubric of discretion. Prosecutors can charge or not charge. What do you make of the prosecutorial discretion argument, and which I'm sure Trump's lawyers presented to the DOJ, which is whatever you have, you shouldn't do it? Well, it is definitely true that the feds have discretion to bring cases, uh, total discretion as to whether to decide to bring a case or not, whether it's against Donald Trump or somebody else. And part of the answer to your question is lies in the, in the obscurity of the federal grand jury process, because nobody really knows the details of what has been developed in the federal grand jury uh, by the prosecutors uh, on the issues that you raised. The core issue that distinguishes Trump from the other two that we know about, Biden and Pence, who, who recovered documents recently and disclosed them, uh, is the issue of intent. Uh, and, and there's no, you know, I'd be surprised if there's evidence that Joe Biden knowingly withheld this, uh, surrender of documents at the end of the Obama administration, or that Pence did. Then, and once it was pointed out to them, they disclosed them. So the distinction here is the issue of intent. Did Donald know that he had taken documents that were classified and that were required to be surrendered? And did he intentionally refuse to produce them? And when push came to shove and subpoenas were issued by the grand jury, did he intentionally uh, choose not to comply with the subpoena and withhold documents? And the fine points and details of that are in the grand jury testimony, uh, which they're taking now, and nobody's gonna learn about unless and until an indictment is brought on the Mar-a-Lago case. Um, so, so yes, you're right, it's an issue. Uh, and the, the answer is wait and see, as uncomfortable as that may be. So talk to us about the grand jury for a bit more. Those, what are called grand jury minutes, the transcripts of what happens in front of the grand jury are secret at least until there is an indictment brought. And then at some point, the prosecution has to turn over to the defense. I have a question. My one question is when. Has to turn over to the defense uh, that material, that those grand jury transcripts, the grand jury minutes. Does the public get to see them? And if so, when? Well, the practice of that's called discovery. This is you're asking me about when is when is does discovery uh, happen? Discovery is the term of art for the practice in which the government is required to disclose to the defense the evidence they have to support the claims that are brought. And typically, in its simplest form, it would be grand jury transcripts, sworn tra testimony of witnesses that they're going to call a trial that would testify against the defendant. The defendant is entitled to review those transcripts. There may be documents that were marked and introduced as exhibits in the grand jury. 
the, the defendant would be entitled to get those documents. And it's after indictment. It's not before the indictment. So the defendant is, and his defendant's lawyers are working in a, in a bit of a vacuum. They don't have the precise testimony. They may not get that in these discussions and pre-indictment discussions with the government. It's only after a charge is brought that the defendants will give, the, the government will give the defendants a stack of grand jury transcripts, a pile of uh, documents. And in this day and age, of course, a gazillion emails and lots of texts and maybe some videos and say to the, to the defendant, here's all the evidence, go at it. And um, the stage, the table is then set for a trial. In your judgment, John, does Trump get indicted? And if so, where does he get indicted? Well, I think he's going to get indicted on Myra Lago. I mean, this meeting, uh, I, I don't think you have this meeting. Um, if you're going to decline the case, if you're Jack Smith and you've looked at the Myra Lago, you've made, weighed out all the all the arguments that have been made, which you're, you've you've articulated in this in this uh, show today about Pence and Biden and their records. If you've weighed it all out and you've decided you're going to decline the case, that meaning you're not going to charge them. You just call them and tell them you're not going to charge them. You don't have this long involved meeting. If you've decided you are going to charge him, you know, for sure, you're going to charge him for sure. You still have the meeting in deference to the defendant's lawyers making a presentation. And the little tiny space between those two options is if you're not 100% committed to indict him, uh, my, uh, then you might have the, then you have the meeting anyway to listen to every conceivable argument the defense can make. My gut in this is it's, you know, nine chances in 10, they've decided to indict them. They have told the defendants. I mean, I made these calls when I was a prosecutor. We have decided to indict your client. If you want to come in and talk us out of it, come on in. But we want you to know that's where we're going at this point. And if you don't come in, we're going to indict them. That's the phone call. John, and you think, oh, go yeah, ahead, Bill. Buzz, go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask John, uh, uh, Trump and his supporters all allege that this is political. We're heading into a very intense political season in which he's already announced he's going to be a presidential candidate. As a prosecutor, how do you segregate the political implications? Clearly, it's in the middle of a political season from uh, good faith prosecution by the Department of Justice of a former president. How do you segregate those two? Well, I've never done that, Buzz. Uh, but uh, uh, I think that you cannot. I mean, the high, the, the, the standard, I mean, I think you can't walk away from a significant criminal case because of the political standing of, of the person against whom it could be brought. That That's the standard of, you know, for these prosecutors. Um, you can't put it out of your mind. You know he's going to stage a war in the press. You know that there's a risk that it could lead to some violence in the streets his supporters, he's egged them on. He's all but asked them to be violent if he's charged. Um, but I think that if you look down the, 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 the sort of medium run of time, we may well end up going into an election with Donald Trump being charged in four separate indictments. Think about that. Think about what that's gonna be like. He's already charged in New York with fraud. That case is going to happen. I think it's scheduled for a year from now, next March. He easily gets charged in Mar-a-Lago. I think he could he could easily get charged in the insurrection, and he could get charged in Georgia, with a pretty expansive 
uh, state court uh, violations, and you could be looking at a the 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 standard the flag bearer for the Republican Party under indictment in four different separate jurisdictions by four separate grand juries. That's un, I mean talk about unprecedented. Uh, it's been a long time since we had somebody run for president. Uh, under indictment. That did happen, by the way, many years ago. There was a famous uh, labor leader named Debs, Eugene Debs. Uh, who ran for president, raised more than a million dollars way back when in the early uh, 19th century, uh, 20th century. Um, and he ran for president from prison. And he, if he had been elected, he would not have been prohibited from taking the, the oath of office and being the president of the United States. So that is sort of where you're headed with a four, you know, a four indictment monster laying uh, as an overlay to, you know, to the presidential campaign. Unintest, you know, it's 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 beyond unexpected. It's beyond uh, a presidential. Uh, who knows where it ends up uh, and whether it peels off Republican voters? I don't know. It's a good thing this is not a novel. It would be unbelievable. Yeah. We have been speaking with John Pucci. I have some more questions for you, John, so I hope you can stay with us. I want to ask, how in life are you ever going to pick a jury, an unbiased jury of 12 people to sit and decide any of these charges? We're going to discuss that right after this break. The military. The news is so fake. Listen, I get it. I was once an aspiring comedian just like you. I You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Recovery is in full swing at Jan Jay's farm in Amherst after a devastating fire over the weekend. Amherst Fire Department officials say this was a freak accident due to a lightning strike. Owner Mike Waskowitz spoke with 22 News. Still in shock, um, kind of like maybe I don't believe it. Neighboring farms have stepped in to help care for the cows in need of a home. Allard's Farm, Mapeline Farm and Divine Farms in Hadley and Brian Belder Farm in Waitley have all taken in the cows. A GoFundMe currently has more than 900 donations of over $87,000 as of yesterday afternoon. Around 2 p.m. Monday, a vehicle caught fire with the driver still inside on I-91 southbound in Waitley. The driver, an 80-year-old Greenfield man, may have suffered a medical emergency. When responders arrived on scene, they extricated the driver and he was transported to the hospital with minor injuries. The Northampton Police Department is experiencing a high rate of staff turnover, leaving the department understaffed and forced to work additional overtime. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Sherris says the current situation is unsustainable. So if we can get those vacancies filled more quickly, that will bring that overtime down. But I think there is a question about whether there is enough staff as it is to meet the calls. At last week's city council meeting, Northampton councilors voted to approve additional spending on the police department to begin the hiring process for new officers, while others anticipate retirement. Sun-cloud combination today, chance for a shower this morning, scattered showers, even a thunderstorm likely this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Variable clouds, chance for a light shower this evening, overnight lows of 46 to 52. Another mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, chance for a sprinkle or light shower, a high of 68 to 72. Upper 60s with scattered showers on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashibega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El ex vicepresidente Mike Pence presentó documentos el lunes declarando su campaña para presidente en 2024, desafiando a su ex jefe Donald Trump solo dos años después de que su tiempo en la Casa Blanca terminara con la insurrección en el Capitolio de Estados Unidos y la huida de Pence por su vida. Pence, el vicepresidente número 48 de la nación, lanzará formalmente su candidatura a la nominación republicana con un video y un evento de lanzamiento en Des Moines, Iowa el miércoles, que es su cumpleaños número 64, según personas familiarizadas con sus planes. Hizo oficial su candidatura el lunes con la Comisión Federal de Elecciones. Opositor acérrimo del derecho al aborto, Pence apoya una prohibición nacional del procedimiento y ha hecho campaña contra las políticas que reafirman a las personas transgénero en las escuelas. Ha argumentado que los cambios en el Seguro Social y Medicare, como aumentar la edad de calificación, deberían estar sobre la mesa para mantener la solvencia de los programas, a lo que tanto Trump como DeSantis se han opuesto y criticó a DeSantis por su creciente disputa con Disney. En otras informaciones, el académico y activista progresista Cornel West anunció el lunes que se postulará para presidente el próximo año como candidato de un tercer partido, diciendo que quiere empoderar a las personas que han sido empujadas a los márgenes. En un video de Twitter, West dijo que se postulará como miembro del Partido Popular. West es un conocido erudito y autor negro y ex profesor en las universidades de Harvard y Princeton. En el sitio web de su campaña, West dice que quiere poner fin a las guerras, disolver la OTAN, perdonar todas las deudas estudiantiles, ampliar la seguridad social e invertir en energía limpia. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And because of the importance of the topic we are discussing today, we have an expanded version of Crime and Punishment with attorney John Pucci. We have been speaking about Trump and Mar-a-Lago and the impending indictments. And I raised the question with you, John, before the break, uh, how in life for this case, I assume it would be brought in the federal courts in Florida, uh, as well as the New York uh, indictment for uh, paying off the uh, porn star, uh, Stormy Daniels, not to mention the indictments that I assume would happen if they happen in Washington, D.C. for the January 6th insurrection, as well as the Georgia, Georgia case, the criminal case, which seems to be moving towards indictment uh, for interference with the election there. How in life will you ever, you, will a court ever seat 12 unbiased jurors coming into that, coming into that jury box and saying, I have no opinion, I can decide this solely on the evidence presented in court, I won't be influenced by anything I know or feel or have heard for the last six years. How is that remotely possible? Well, um... I think it's a legitimate question. I don't. I think it's lost a lot of its power uh, as a result of the verdicts that have been reached in the insurrection cases in Washington D.C. Uh, there's been, I don't know, a thousand cases brought. There's been almost a hundred trials, and one would have expected that in a hundred trials involving the pol Trump issues and the political issues implicated by charging others for crimes relating to the insurrection that there would be some people that would get on the jury who would be MAGA people 
or pro-Trump people who would influence the outcomes of those cases. But in fact, um, in 100% of the 100 trials that have gone before juries, there have been convictions, which is a really extraordinary number. It's actually higher than the norm, which is in federal court, which is only about 95%. But in 100%, there have been no hung juries. There've been no juries that that they've been, you know, where they, for instance, you know, the juries have reported they can't reach a verdict, that they're stalemated, that they, you know, those juries, a hundred percent of those hundred juries have returned verdicts convicting people of political crimes relating to Donald Trump. Not one of them has been sidelined, not one acquittal, not one hung jury. And so I think those results give confidence to prosecutors if in fact you look back at those hundred cases and 70 percent I and mean, 50 percent of them or a third of them resulted in hung juries they couldn't get juries that were pured purified of you know political pro-maga sentiments then you might have caught pause for concern how are we going to convict in it you know in this same space washington dc of these kinds of crimes um, how are we going to do that? Look at the results. We've got hung juries. We've got acquittals in strong cases. That's not happened. So all of these cases, all of the convictions, 100% conviction rate, no hung juries, no acquittals, sends the message to the prosecutors, we should have confidence that we'll be able to pick juries that will not get waylaid by the Donald Trump process. Now, I want to add, I want to add, Put in one piece about picking the jury here, which is which is really interesting, and it happened in the case, the civil case against Trump, the rape defamation case. The judge decided to have an anonymous jury. Now, it's an anonymous jury means that the identities of the juries of the jurors are never disclosed, even to the defense attorneys, and they're never disclosed publicly, and the jurors are told that. That practice of having an anonymous jury only started with John Gotti, who was a, you know, a major mafia figure who fixed trials and killed people routinely to avoid uh, uh, prosecution. And as a result of his violence, when they, they held juries, uh, juries were held to, in his, his cases, they were anonymous. It's really never been applied in a general white collar case. So this is an unbelievable thing. I would expect that they would have anonymous juries so that the jurors can feel free. They won't be persecuted. They won't be threatened. They won't be the subjects of violence in considering their verdicts. It's really a quite extraordinary and I expect it will happen in each and every one of the jurisdictions where criminal charges are brought against Donald Trump. Well, John, you just told us why the prosecutors may feel comfortable with these juries, given the results and the potential juries, given the results so far. What I'd be interested to know is your perspective on how the defense would feel comfortable. How does the defense going to feel that there's a group of people who are coming with no predisposition, no antagonism, no bad feelings about their client, Donald Trump? There, it's a blank slate and they can be fair to him in all respects. How does, I understand how you can tell us that the prosecution gets there and they can have a fair trial. What about from the defense point of view? The defense will have, will, will have hired one or more really, really sophisticated juror consultants 
And they, those consultants will read, they'll get a lot of information about the juries and maybe not the names and addresses, but they'll get information. They'll be in the courtroom. There'll, they'll be questionnaires too. They'll fill that 50 pages. There'll be a lot of material and information. And these, these juror consultants who are experts on reading the tea leaves of how people think and where they might lean, um, you know, will render their advice. And, and I will say there's another part of the jury consultant process is the defense will have, and the government too, will have mock trials. So they will br bring in higher people who are relatively neutral to sit in, in a mock jury system and they'll try out their themes and they'll try out their ideas to these mock jurors. And, the, and it's very valuable. The jurors may well say, okay, the jurors, the, the, the lawyers, and it's not, it's not rare that lawyers will conclude that the theme I was, one of the themes I was going to push to the jury is a total bust. And I'm looking at 12 potential jurors, you know, who would, could have been on the jury, but we've hired as, you know, as experts in, in how juries think. And these, these particular individuals have said, forget that argument, it's a loser. So there'll be a jury mock trial process. There'll be experts in the room looking at the jurors individually, reading the tea leaves, crossing which legs do they cross? You know, do they scratch their right ear or their left ear? I don't know what all the details are. It's a little bit magical to me, but that process is a very sophisticated process and will definitely be in play in both sides in this case. John, Pusey, I just want to back, I want to follow up on Bill's question. Uh, so the listeners probably know that what's going to happen is the judge is going to instruct the jury and tell, talk to them about not being biased and not being prejudiced and what do they know about this case. And then there's a magic question that says, can you stand impartial? As a trial lawyer, John, what does that mean and what, goes, what do you look at to see whether or not a juror can in fact stand impartial despite having been exposed to certain facts? Well, it's really, uh, it's really a matter of instinct. Um, looking at a person and, and trying to figure out if they're telling the truth or if they lean, uh, the judge may allow you to ask the jurors, to, the judges to ask, the lawyers to ask questions specifically to the jurors themselves. And it's reading their body language. It's reading, you know, uh, it's taking a measure, the measure that we all take as human beings of other people who tell us things that, that we want to rely on. Are they telling us everything? Do we, do they believe it a hundred percent? Um, you know, all those things that you bring forward in life as a base, as a, you know, as a product of your life experience are in play when you're picking a jury, who's telling the truth. Is this, can I trust this person? Do they like me? Am I, you know, do they, or, or are they sort of scorning some of the things that I'm saying? How are they reacting to my questions? Do, regardless of what the answers are, how are they reacting to my questions? Um, all of that goes into it and there'll be strikes, you know, the juror, the lawyers will give in strikes, meaning that the judge will remove potential jurors, uh, some for rate reasons that are on the record and some just a matter of gut reaction, what are, uh, what are called peremptory challenges. Um, and so the process is very arcane. It's very instinctual. Uh, there'll be a lot of information here from jury consultants. And at the end of the day, um, you know, Donald Trump may be sitting there. He'll be sitting there at a criminal trial and they'll be asking him what he thinks. Let me ask you this. Does Donald Trump have to attend his criminal trials or because one is scheduled for the, well, kind of middle beginning of the primary season, the New York one is, uh, does he have to go, go to his trial or can he waive his right to be present at his trial? 
I, I don't know what the New York law is on the criminal side. We know that he didn't attend the civil trial in which the million dollar, $5 million verdict was rendered against him. Um, I think anybody who's a defendant in a criminal case, it's a lot easier to convict someone who's not there than someone sitting there and typically sitting there with their family behind them because effectively the jury verdict is a verdict not just against the defendant, but it's effectively a verdict that will have enormous impact on the family. And so if you're a defense attorney, you want the family there, you want them to be sympathetic, you want the jurors to understand that their verdict goes beyond, the impact will go far beyond uh, the defendant uh, who, you know, who will be sentenced someday. Yeah, and I think that you want the jury, as a defense lawyer, you want the jury not only to see the defendant, you want to see the defendant's family there supporting him, particularly in those New York charges where it's a little tawdry and you say, yes, here's my wife, here's my daughter, here's my son-in-law, they're all behind me, they believe this is just a crock. And I think that, I, I don't think actually that he can or the judge has to accept a waiver of his presence. And I think he really has to be there both as a legal matter, a constitutional matter, and a practical matter as well. John Pucci, it's always great talking to you. Thanks so much for your insight. Thanks for your time. Really, we're very, very appreciative. All I can say is stay tuned, Bill. Mm. We will. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Having a hard time with your mental health or substance use? You have options. The 24-7 Behavioral Health Helpline is your front door to care. Call 833-773-2445 to speak with a trained staff member and get connected to the support you need. Want to see someone right away? Visit mass.gov cbhcs to find your local community behavioral health center a service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. It's the all-new Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Brought to you by realtor Craig Delapena. Over 18 years experience selling valley homes within 10 blocks of rail trails near parks and other conservation areas or antique and historic houses. Contact Craig at NorthamptonRealtor.com slash innovator. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster only on WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
there is a story that's widely covered, more widely covered now than it was a couple of days ago that I think is really worthy of your attention. And I would like to get your opinion on it, Buzz. Yours too, Dan. Here is the most recent piece that I've seen from today's New York Times. It has to do with whether it is okay to ban the Bible. I'm not making this up. Ban the Bible. And in Utah, whether it's okay to ban the Book of Mormon. Really? Let me just share a couple of these sentences. Under the headline, in Utah, scriptures and sarcasm enter the debate over what books to outlaw. Public schools are closed for the summer in Utah, leaving their libraries quieter than usual. But books on the shelves are now the subject of a skirmish. One is distinct from many other cultural clashes over education in the United States. In this case, the title in questions are the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And the reason that these books have been challenged is because, well, they have terrible stories about violence and incest and rape. They're pornographic, and according to one and parent. Yes. The request, one request to remove the Bible in December, challenged the King James Version, version which is held sacred by members of the uh, Latter Church of Latter-day Saint members and Christians generally. Both complaints about these books followed the passage of state legislation prohibiting, quote, pornographic or indecent materials in the public school setting. The measure is titled Sensitive Materials in Schools and it was passed into law in March 2022. And in fact, it's pretty interesting that some uh, quite conservative folks have said, yes, you're right, we need to ban the Bible. It can't be, it's just not appropriate for grade school, maybe for middle school or for high school, but lower grades, absolutely, the Bible, it's, it's pornographic, or at least it contains pornographic passages. Interesting how conservatives can end up coming out against including the Bible on the shelves. So it's, it's, well, there's been, of course, pushback on this, and the uh, director of Utah Parents United, which supports the state bill, said the complaints against religious texts were, quote, trying to minimize the real concerns of parents. Well, maybe, but, you know, you get what you ask for, and you said none of this kind of material should be on the shelves, and this kind of material, these kinds of stories are in the Bible. What's your view, Buzz? Well, it's in, everything you said is just breathtaking to me, but... I want to read further a little bit from the complaint by the Utah Parents for United. Um, this is a quote. Quote, I thank the Utah legislature and Utah Parents United for making this bad faith process so much easier and way more efficient. This is, I'm reading from the complaint. Quote, now we can all ban books and you don't even have to read them or be accurate about it. Heck, you don't even need to see the book. That's what it says in the complaint. It's it's like it affirms against one of the books, not 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 the book against the not the complaint against the. Well, Bible. talking about it's the process the would allow that allows the middle school and elementary school to ban it. That's the process that the Utah legislature uh, provided, and that's what it's speaking to. Is a process you don't even have to see the book in order to get it banned under this legislative enactment. Right, but there is a review process for books that are being challenged. Uh, it is interesting to me that this complaint about the Bible and the Book of Mormon has actually been 
taken so seriously. Yeah, uh, and they, 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 have... they say, the complaint says incest, uh, onanism, bestiality, prostitution, genital mutilation, fellatio, dildos, rape, and even infanticides are all contained in the Bible. Uh, this is Dan. I would say you cannot censor this, given the state of the internet, information. We live in a very diverse country. Every school district will buy different sets of books. They only can purchase a certain number of books. I think going down this path is uh, wrong-headed, idiotic. We've done this before in our history. It won't work. Uh, but it does make people feel good, and it gets people agitated politically. That's what I wanted to add. Well, I think it points that if you're going to censor the Bible, it shows out the idiocy and self-destructive nature of censorship. But listen to this. This is from Ken Ivory, who's the Republican state representative who sponsored this bill. And he said that the uh, Bible complaint amounted to, quote, antics that drain school resources. But then, last Friday, he said, no, not, not, I want to take that back a little bit, in essence. He said... The King James Version of the Bible is, quote, a challenging read for elementary or middle school children on their own. Traditionally in America, the Bible is best taught and best understood in the home and around the family hearth as a family, indicating that, well, yeah, maybe we should ban the Bible. Oh, boy. That's Amazing. a tough note Amazing. to leave it, us on. leave it on. Well, we'll, we'll leave it, and we'll pick this discussion up in future shows. Thank you all for being with us on Talk the Talk. My name is Silas Kopp. I have yeah, long these been quotes are unbelievable. Riverside Industries in East Hampton. You'll, you'll know that by the years, They have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. Major dam in territory, it holds, and now NATO does too. This is an outrageous act. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in Slovakia today. The destruction of the Kohovka Dam today puts thousands of civilians at risk and causes severe environmental damage. And he said again, Russia's war on Ukraine has changed the security environment for the long term. CBS's Cami McCormick. Moscow blames Kyiv for the attack, which is flooding local settlements and potentially endangering operations at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. 
CBS News has confirmed lawyers for former President Donald Trump had a high-level, high-stakes meeting at the Justice Department yesterday. It's mulling criminal charges over those classified documents found in Trump properties. Trump's former Attorney General, Bill Barr, telling CBS Morning. I suspect it's near. I've said for a while that I think this is the most dangerous legal risk facing the former president. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if I had to bet, I would bet that it's near. Louisiana has become the latest state to restrict LGBTQ rights for young people. CBS's Jim Crisula has that. The Louisiana state Senate has passed three anti-LGBTQ measures, including a ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender youth. The body also approved a bill that forbids K-12 teachers and school staff from talking about gender identity or sexual orientation or discussing either topic in a classroom. Another measure requires school staff to call students by the pronouns on the their birth certificates unless parents give permission otherwise. Prince Harry has walked into a London courtroom and into the history books, becoming the first British royal in modern times to testify in a court case. He's among multiple celebrities suing the Mirror newspapers for alleged phone hacking. In legal documents, Harry claims other members of the royal family have avoided going to court because they don't want to testify about issues that may be embarrassing. Harry told Oprah in 2021 that he believes his family is scared that the British tabloids, with their massive readerships, could turn against them. CBS's Holly Williams in London. Pope Francis went into a Rome hospital today, reportedly for tests. The 86-year-old pontiff is back at the Vatican. He was hospitalized for three days with bronchitis back in March. On Wall Street, the Dow was almost unchanged shortly after the open. To Brazil now. Her voice helped create a bossa nova supernova, Astrid Gilberto, the Brazilian vocalist who sang the English language lyrics on The Girl from Ipanema Has Died at 83. This is CBS News. Need hires who dazzle without the hassle? You need Indeed. Their powerful platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, Select Quote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, call Select Quote at 1 800 330 1991. That's 1 800 330 1991. Or go to SelectQuote.com. That's 1 800 330 1991. Select Quote. We shop, you save. Full details on example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. It was an auction and a walk down television's memory lane. The auction in Dallas was of props, costumes, and sets all amassed by one man over 30 years. In all, the items sold during the... For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Recovery is in full swing at Jan Jay's farm in Amherst after a devastating fire over the weekend. Amherst Fire Department officials say this was a freak accident due to a lightning strike. Owner Mike Waskowitz spoke with 22 News. Still in shock, um, kind of like maybe I don't believe it. Neighboring farms have stepped in to help care for the cows in need of a home. Allard's Farm, Mapeline Farm and Divine Farms in Hadley and Brian Belder Farm in Waitley have all taken in the cows. 
A GoFundMe currently has more than 900 donations of over $87,000 as of yesterday afternoon. Around 2 p.m. Monday, a vehicle caught fire with the driver still inside on I-91 southbound in Waitley. The driver, an 80-year-old Greenfield man, may have suffered a medical emergency. When responders arrived on scene, they extricated the driver and he was transported to the hospital with minor injuries. The Northampton Police Department is experiencing a high rate of staff turnover, leaving the department understaffed and forced to work additional overtime. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera says the current situation is unsustainable. So if we can get those vacancies filled more quickly, that will bring that overtime down. But I think there is a question about whether there is enough staff as it is to meet the calls. At last week's city council meeting, Northampton councilors voted to approve additional spending on the police department to begin the hiring process for new officers, while others anticipate retirement. Sun-cloud combination today, chance for a shower this morning, scattered showers, even a thunderstorm likely this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Variable clouds, chance for a light shower this evening, overnight lows of 46 to 52. Another mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, chance for a sprinkle or light shower, a high of 68 to 72. Upper 60s with scattered showers on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And we are lucky we, uh, on a monthly basis, on the first Tuesday of the month, we get to speak with Senator Paul W. Mark. He is, uh, he represents the Berkshire, Hampton, let me make sure I get it, Berkshire, Hampton, Franklin, and Hampshire. Is that the right order, Paul? That is the correct order, and that W makes me sound fancy. Wow. Oh, you are, well, you are fancy. <laughs> Senator Paul W. Mark has been a busy guy. It is that season when the, uh, when the legislature entertains the uh, suggestion of the governor. Um, the proposed budget uh, it goes first through the House. It comes to the Senate. The Senate this past week has approved a budget of approximately $56 billion, I believe, and my first question for you, Senator, is what's the difference? What's the view look like from uh, the Senate chamber as, as opposed to what you did for almost 12 years from the House chamber? How is the budget process different if it is? Yeah, so on paper, there's a lot that's similar. And in practice, in the end, there's a lot that's similar in that like we're all advocating for line items and earmarks and, and items for our district and statewide items. So like that that's that's consistent. The biggest difference is just a consequence of going from a body of 160 people to a body of 40. And so on the Senate side, what I really enjoyed was there were multiple meetings with the chair ways and means. There were check-in calls with the chair and ways and means. There were sheets that I was asked to send over to the chair ways and means discussing my priorities and uh, advocating for my amendments. And there was a lot of opportunity to talk with other senators about, you know, what do you file? What should I file? What did we what do we need to do? Having the benefit of the House members already have gone through their budget process. Like, where did we think something was lacking? Where can we make a stand that maybe we missed out on something the House did, but in the end, we hope we'll both make it through conference committee, that, that kind of thing. So there was, there, was a, there was a lot of benefit to that, to both having the smaller numbers and so being able to work collaboratively and work those relationships, I think, really well for the area. And then also, you know, having that benefit of seeing, having been in the House and worked with the six reps I, I, I share territory with, 
having seen what they were able to do, what they were able to get. So like Natalie Blay got money for the double H theater in Asheville. I didn't have to go for that. That was perfect. Like that, that, that knocked something off my plate and let me focus uh, somewhere else. Just trying to build those partnerships all over the region uh, was important. And then what I didn't like about it was because there's so few members, the members of the Senate like to make speeches about all of their amendments. <laughs> so there was an awful lot of, um, Speechifying. Pontificating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Speechifying. And and, and it, it really lived up to, without without making fun of anyone, I, I understand everyone has a different reason for wanting to to uh, make comment or, or whatever. The word senator, its roots are literally old people talking. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think we did the ancient Senate proud. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Let's talk about your district a little bit. You have, I think... Not only the largest district of any senator in uh, Massachusetts, but maybe in Massachusetts history. Did I did I get that right? Yeah, as far as I know, this is the largest geographic district uh, in the most communities in the history of the Massachusetts legislature. So, how many communities? Can you tell us what, where and where it is? The Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire district. Where where is yeah, it? I know it's out in the Berks. Sure, sure. It's it's so it's it's fifty seven communities. It's all thirty two cities and towns in Berkshire County, so two cities and 30 towns. And then in Franklin County, it is the 11 western towns, so Coleraine, Shelburne, Waitley, and you go west from there all the way to the New York border. In Hampshire County, it is the nine most western towns, and so uh, Williamsburg, West Hampton, and then you head west from there out to Worthington, Cummington, all that area. And then five communities in Hamden County, uh, culminating in Southwick. And for people, I, I, I think people listening regionally know this, but for people that don't know, when you look at the map of Massachusetts, there's a little, there's a little town that kind of hangs into Connecticut. That's, that's Southwick, and that's where my district ends. So my, my district is actually south of parts of Connecticut. So literally western Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much everything west of the river. So not, not Northampton, uh, of course, but and, and not not Westfield, not Agawam, but other than that, most of the territory west of the river. Is there anything unique that springs from that western uh, mass nature of your district? That is, Senator Joe Comerford, uh, she, she, she comes on this show monthly as well, um, and she, she has hill towns. She has small cities yep. as well. Is there something about the character of your district that, that makes it different than other districts? Oh yeah, it's 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 at least twice as large as either Senator Cumberford's or former Senator now Angobi's district. Uh, I, if you combine those two, I I I still have more towns than that. <laughs> they both have really large districts, and in in, in terms of uh, Joe's district, she has Northampton, she has Greenfield, she has Amherst, she has several cities which have a lot of po- population. I have, I have Pittsfield, and then after that, it 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 really trails off, and so North Adams. Is only about twelve thousand people. So, so already, yeah, North Adams is a city. It's the smallest city in the state, but it's it, in in many parts of the state. You would think of it as like a really large town. Like I've I've had other other senators say that the uh, the smallest community in their district is is twelve thousand people, and it's like wow. <laughs> so having forty towns that are under five thousand people is is different, is unique, and brings a perspective. There's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of independent spirit. And what I'm trying to do as a person that can serve all of these communities is to try to bridge those gaps and, and, and figure out how how we get more collaboration and how we hold on to the unique uniqueness that makes each community special, but also figure ways to like save money and accomplish more together. 
So you mentioned earlier uh, this word earmarks, and a lot of us still, I mean, there wasn't much that I agreed with John McCain about, except that he had this aversion to earmarks. He wanted every proposal not to be tagged along as an amendment to something else, but rather to stand on its own for debate and decision. Um, but when you say ear, earmarks for your various, it, it seems to me there's something about your the rural nature of your district um, that kind of defines the kinds of earmarks that you look for. So could you define earmarks mm -hmm. and then talk about it in the context of the character of your district? Yeah, ear, ear, earmark simply means a directed funding, a directed area of funding by a legislator. And so I would agree if to sell a bill on some policy piece, so maybe we're going to make something up, we're going to raise the drinking age to 25 around the country, and to sell that to people, we're going to tackle them, we're going to build a new football field at the University of Alabama. Yeah, that's nonsense. That, that's just trying to buy people's vote on policy issues that they should be deciding based on the merits. When you're talking about budgeting or bonding, earmarks are amazing because it lets local community members come to me or come to the state reps who have a much better local relationship or more on the ground and let us direct funding directly to things that we advocate for that we hope are worthwhile and we hope people at a statewide lens will, will, will see the value in and, and, and help invest in our communities. If we don't earmark anything in a budget or a bond, what we're saying is we want the governor exclusively to have the right to decide how all funding for the state is spent. And obviously do, through the governor's administration and through those agencies, but ultimately that's what you're saying is that there should be a grant program for road funding and it should all be decided either by a formula or by the governor's pick. And, you know, depending on the governor, they might have a great uh, finger on the pulse of our area, but generally uh, that isn't what I've seen. And so this, this gives us a chance to make sure that the local voice is really being heard. So I, I think it's wonderful. Well, by way of example, I know that there's been a big tumult about the Coleraine sewer district that arises out of the uh, closing of a manufacturing concern up there. I can't... Barnard, I think, is the name Barnhart. of it. Barnard, yep. Yeah, and uh, you were asked to step in and help because the sewer district was completely uh, threatened by a lack of funding. Could you explain that particular earmark and how you got involved and what it means? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Barnhart is a company that has been there for, in, in some form has been there for a very long time and, and under this guise has been there for a few decades and have decided the, have decided they're going to close down the operations in Coleraine at the same time in the town of Coleraine, there's about 25 households that their septic sewer system goes through the plant. And so the plant not, operating its treatment plant anymore is going to cause a problem that could ultimately leave these 25 homes without any septic system. And so without discussing like the entire history of how it got here or why no one was prepared for this, the town and the separate entity known as a sewer district were apparently not ready for this. And so in order to help them bridge the gap and buy them some time, me and, and, and Natalie Blay worked on how do we get them $50,000 that will help them keep the system open and come up with a study and come up with a more permanent plan on what to do to keep this, to keep this place open. And then hopefully at some point people will also start to look at what can we do with this factory? Either is there a different business that would like to move in there or can we turn it into some kind of a housing? I mean, it already has the, the, the water and sewer system uh, ready to go and not to toot my own horn as the rep for Coleraine, 
years ago, uh, I, I was anticipating this through conversations I was having and had earmarked money for a town-wide sewer system in a bond bill that has, hasn't been released, that the, the town hasn't really you know, moved to that level yet of, 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 of how to access that kind of funding. So, But that's where, again, earmarks are good because with, even with 57 towns, uh, it gives me a chance to hear directly. People were emailing me directly. My, my, my staff were on weekly calls with this local entity trying to figure out what's going on and how can we help. Whereas the poor governor, she's you know she's running around the entire state, so expecting her to be on top of that is just is just not reasonable. It, it's a great example of uh, that issue is so important to that community of Colerain. Neighboring communities don't know anything about it unless they really follow these sorts of things. I only know about it because at one point I was asked to moderate uh, a, a meeting about it. I declined because I'm not a member of that community. I shouldn't be moderating in that community. But I realized that has a profound impact the sewer district not having enough funds to continue to operate has a profound impact on a community you have 57 such communities each with their own unique problems yeah it's a lot to keep track of it and i i I think i've said on the show but i say to people as i do various office hours like if i went to one town a week i still couldn't get to you all in a year so i i've 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 heard very few complaints i've heard one complaint (laughs) from one person only about uh, not being present in their town, but it's like we're 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 making every effort, and we're getting around. And then when it comes to budgeting, there's there's so many worthwhile causes, both at the statewide level and the local level. And we try to balance them all. We try to make a case why our communities need to get as much funding as possible, and as do my colleagues in both the Senate and the House. And in the end, you said it's a fifty-six billion dollar budget, and we're not Washington. We we we. We have to balance our budget. We can only spend a set amount. And so we we work really hard to make sure that, A, the money is spent wisely, and then, B, that the resources we can bring back to our specific districts are going to go as far. And, and, and Colerain's an example where I think it's going to go far. I'd be interested to know, Senator, how you distinguish, how you make decisions about which one of the 57 or so uh, communities you represent, which ones are going to be designated to have a, a, a an earmark? I mean, every community has a priority, and how do you how, how do you make that decision? And how do you evaluate this, those decisions that are made and recommendations that are made by others in the Senate and the House who have earmarks? I, I mean, it seems to me like it's a really laborious, difficult, complicated imprecise system but maybe it maybe there's a genius to it i don't quite understand help me out yeah it's 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 a lot and so it's even more difficult in the senate than it was in the house so in the house ultimately if i where i only had 16 communities which is still a lot but if i had 30 requests i i submitted all 30 and made the case for all 30 and it's kind of like you both went to law school um, when I went to law school, I, I would get back, I got an A minus, and I would never have any feedback as to why I got the A minus or not. <laughs> like with the bar exam, I know I passed. I have no idea how I did. And so the house budget is kind of like that. You you take thirty shots and you get eight, and you're like, all right, awesome. I did I did great here. I don't know how they decided um, in the Senate because on one hand the district is so much bigger. You try to first manage your time, and so like I try to as I rotate through my office hours. We, we do. I, I consider I have six regions of my district, and so we do twice a month. Every region has an office hours, and then twice a month 
I also do a, a, a different town hall in one of the other towns that don't get the repeating office hours, if that makes sense. And the intent there is to get to every one of these communities at least for a public forum at least once per term, because that's like as, as, as realistic as you can get. And so then as you hear from people, that's how you start to learn what's important. You do follow up. You try to stay in touch. Your staff helps you. You do emails, all of this. And in the end, I still essentially submit every request that comes in that has any validity. It's just where now you're making really like 60 requests. It's, 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 it's hard to get them all to be funded. And that's where having the experience of having been in the house, that having that partnership really helps us, I think, cover twice as much ground as we would otherwise. And I think that's going to have a good impact on my, on my district towns. Uh, we are speaking with Senator Paul, Paul W. Mark, the distinguished <laughs> senator representing the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire District. We're going to continue that conversation right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here no, on WHMP. They're clearly Got chronic joint pain? Not point. having success with steroids I, I, but trying to avoid surgery? Like well, thankfully, the... there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413 992 5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
WHMP. And we are back. It is the On the Mark segment with mm-hmm. Senator Paul Mark. Bill, um, I just wanted to ask you, I seem to be, I'm looking around the studio, I seem to be missing about, oh, I don't know, about $2.5 billion. Did you take it? Do you see it? Right. So, Paul Mark, Senator Paul Mark, $2.5 billion the Baker administration spent that wasn't supposed to be spent that now the federal government wants back from Massachusetts? What is going on? How do you lose track of $2.5 billion? And how did anyone not know about this? And where's the state auditor in all of this? And what is going on? Help. Yeah, it's, 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 it's wacky because as we craft the budget, first it was last month uh, in April, there was like this sudden drop off of revenue. And it's like, oh, no, now what are we going to do? And then it bounced back when we get we got the main numbers. And so we're, we're still in pretty good shape. But where I said, like, the budget has to always be in balance. We constantly watch any fluctuations. And one of the fluctuations that's possibly going to be a problem now is uh, the story I've been reading that apparently Governor Baker spent two and a half billion dollars of federal money on state allocations for unemployment insurance, which is not what you're supposed to do. And so as we're learning about this now, uh, Governor Healy is trying to figure out, well, how do we make this right? And how do we make this right in a way where we don't all of a sudden just have to send two and a half billion dollars from the rainy day fund uh, to Washington. So I, I, I know she's good at negotiations. I know she has a good relationship with the uh, federal administration. So I'm hoping that there's going to way going to be a way to make this happen uh, that is going to be minimally invasement and invasive and hopefully not uh, impact any unemployment services moving forward. But yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of wacky. And then it calls into question that 62 F law, which was this law that had been on the books from a ballot question in 1986 that said, if, if revenue came in at a certain pace that exceeded this, that, and the other thing and exceeded spending and all of that, that um, there was an automatic refund directly uh, triggered, which happened last year for the first time since 1987, it makes you kind of question, well, if there was some kind of a math error, did that lead to make it seem like revenue was hotter than it was? And was that kind of error an error? Or was it like a little overzealousness? And obviously, it's, that's it's not something I'm aware of. But I think there's going to be some auditing. I think there's going to be some investigation into, into what happened. And again, hopefully, Hopefully the payback, whatever we have to do, is, is going to be painless. Well, I, I understand that it has to be investigated, but how could Governor Baker, who prides himself on his fiscal conservatism and on uh, his abilities as a former CEO uh, to keep track of money, how could he have made a $2.5 billion error? Is there at least a theory of how this happened? I don't have a theory, but I would say the uh, former governor has a book out about how wonderful his time in office was. You know, like people that are running for offices, they put out these books about all the great things they've done. And like he, he talks about how, how amazing his response to COVID was, how amazing his response to the MBTA has been, how amazing, and as you know, this the response to broadband has been. And it's like, wow, <laughs> that's kind of kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you're being facetious, right? I am. And like, you know, I, I again, we, we had a good working relationship with him and I don't think he was the worst governor, but I, I, I don't think he got an A plus either. You know, I, I think he's, he's, he's being a little braggy and this is just like another example of, I don't know how, how great of a manager really was he? Well, he was a person who people liked. He was affable. Yeah. He could communicate. He seemed like a regular kind of person in a lot of ways. And he was very smart. And he didn't yeah. condescend, and he wasn't an overt racist, and he wasn't a Trump. 
uh, Republican, which, of course, by today's standards, makes him kind of iconic in the Republican, uh, of our view of the Republican Party. So he got away with a lot uh, based on personality. But this is a serious managerial error to misplace to, and spend $2.5 billion of federal money that you didn't have the right to spend. That's not a small error. And it's not and it's not as if he just came to office and didn't know about federal and state funding. I mean, it's really, uh, I think, quite concerning. And I'm not alleging any kind of impropriety, but it's a pretty it's a massive kind of mistake. Well, maybe not corruption, but it seems like there may well be impropriety. But Bill, in your question to Senator Paul Mark, you asked the question, how did the state auditor not pick this up? I'm I'm kind of confused about that was Suzanne Bump. I. Um, who I had good reason to feel good about. I'm very surprised that this wasn't picked up. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have the answer to that part of the question because I don't know at what point these records become available to the auditor's office. I, I, I know it's the new auditor Zoglio that uh, has issued the information about this happening. So I, I don't know um, if if Suzanne Bump had the ability to know this or, or not. But then that's part of like electing an auditor good or bad, they have the discretion to audit what they what they choose. And so there is always political decisions in that. So who knows? Can we just go back for one second? The $2.5 billion we're talking about are federal funds that the state spent for unemployment insurance purposes, as I understand it. If that's wrong, tell us. Um, no. And the, is that wrong? No, that's right, as far as I know. Okay. And that money, that federal money, was not allowed to be used for that purpose. And therefore, the federal government is now saying, you owe us $2.5 billion because you spent it improperly. That, that the, a, is that the nub of this? It's a, it's a simplification, but yeah, there's, there's an unemployment in, in many things. There's a state and a federal component, and the federal component was spent on the state part. And so we don't know yet what they're going to ask us for, if anything, or how. But that that's the big question is, yeah, if, if, if Washington says you've got uh, two months to pay back the $2.5 billion, that's going to be a problem. And if they say, well, you're allowed to do, uh, you know, $100 million a year for the next 25 years, still not great, but at least it's manageable. So that that's the wait and see that we, we, we hope that the governor is going to do a good job, you know, finding the right way and minimizing the damage. And was that two and a half million permissible to be used by the state for other things? I believe so. So it's not like we just stole it. It's just that I think they put it into the wrong accounts. And again, it's 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 developing. So I don't wanna, I don't want to speak with authority on something that I don't know 100 percent of the story. But what I'm getting out of it is that federal money that was designed for federal components of unemployment insurance was spent on things that are only authorized at the state level because federal the federal government sounds like a minimum and then we offer better benefits in our state than in in many states so i i think that would be the problem there well i just uh final question and it is a personal question you and i have known each other for quite a while senator paul mark and are you enjoying being in the senate as opposed to being in the house i'm not asking you to to, to, to badmouth the house, but uh, <laughs> how's life in the Senate? Yeah, it's 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 good. So I, I I enjoyed the house a lot 
probably until like the last year because then I was kind of focused on 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 campaigning and you know thinking about what the future was going to hold and letting the reps that were taking my towns you know get get acclimated to the new districts and so the first couple of months were were interesting you're getting to know the new process you're getting to know the, know the new system and it is different it's it, it's going from you know like a high school to a college there's a different system there's fewer people different level and now yeah having come through the budget and having finally got like the the fixed office i'm i'm actually feeling really good about about the senate and really glad uh, that i made the choice to 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 go there so so far so good yeah and we're always really glad that you take the time out of your busy schedule um, to to share your experiences and your insights and your uh, knowledge with us on Talk to Talk. Senator Paul Mark, thank you once again for joining us, and we'll talk next month. Thank you so much. Have a good day. We'll be right back right after these messages. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Recovery is in full swing at Jan Jay's farm in Amherst after a devastating fire over the weekend. Amherst Fire Department officials say this was a freak accident due to a lightning strike. Owner Mike Waskowitz spoke with 22 News. Still in shock, um, kind of like maybe I don't believe it. Neighboring farms have stepped in to help care for the cows in need of a home. Allard's Farm, Mapeline Farm and Divine Farms in Hadley and Brian Belder Farm in Wheatley have all taken in the cows. A GoFundMe currently has more than 900 donations of over $87,000 as of yesterday afternoon. Around 2 p.m. Monday, a vehicle caught fire with the driver still inside on I-91 southbound in Waitley. The driver, an 80-year-old Greenfield man, may have suffered a medical emergency. When responders arrived on scene, they extricated the driver and he was transported to the hospital with minor injuries. The Northampton Police Department is experiencing a high rate of staff turnover, leaving the department understaffed and forced to work additional overtime. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera says the current situation is unsustainable. So if we can get those vacancies filled more quickly, that will bring that overtime down. But I think there is a question about whether there is enough staff as it is to meet the calls. At last week's city council meeting, Northampton councilors voted to approve additional spending on the police department to begin the hiring process for new officers, while others anticipate retirement. Sun-cloud combination today, chance for a shower this morning, scattered showers, even a thunderstorm likely this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Variable clouds, chance for a light shower this evening, overnight lows of 46 to 52. Another mix of sun and clouds tomorrow, chance for a sprinkle or light shower, a high of 68 to 72. Upper 60s with scattered showers on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. You spend seven or eight hours a night together and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin, Robin from Talon. Think about it, seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? 
I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. With us is Executive Director Polly Byers of the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding. Hello, Polly. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, you guys have something really special and sounding wonderful planned for this weekend. Can you tell us about it? Sure, yeah. Um, we have, um, I'm head of the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding, which is an organization that's been based in Amherst for about the past 25 years, um, primarily having done international peacebuilding work. Um, but we felt, as of a couple of years ago, that it was really incumbent on us to be working here uh, in the U.S. and particularly here in this region. Let me ask a dumb question. Go ahead. I'm really no good dumb at questions. That. <laughs> what is the mission of a peacebuilding center? Okay, good question. You know, peace building, I, I won't digress <laughs> too much, but it's a field that has evolved a lot over the last 30 years. And actually, Paula Green, who was the founder, I would say, is a bit of a pioneer in it. There was always, you know, peace building at the uber national level and peace processes. Um, but over the last 25, 30 years, there's been a big evolution and a lot more work at the people to people kind of community level, which is where Paula was really a pioneer in, in basically using the approach of dialogue. And people use the word dialogue now all the time, dialogue here, dialogue there, but it's really the idea of bringing people together. And she started post the Bosnian genocide of bringing people together, first of all, within on one side of the divide and then across the divide to begin to sort of rebuild trust. So you know, peace building works in a, in a lot of different ways, I'd say. And we, you know, having worked for 25 years in about 25 different countries, you know, a lot of different approaches. What we do in Nigeria now is pretty different than we what we did. We mean the Karuna Center. With the Karuna, sorry, with the Karuna Center's work, we have a big, we're in the fifth year of a program in Nigeria that's working on the farmer-herder conflict. And what it looks like there, peace building is actually training kind of community facilitators to help facilitate local, to mediate basically potential conflict between farmers and herders versus the work in a context like Myanmar, extremely different. But at the root, a lot of, I think, what Karuna Center is really known for, and hence the title of this event is coming up, is about the power of dialogue. It's really trying to Locally use and globally. Locally, it's basically what we have been doing internationally for 25 years of bringing some of that experience back here to the U.S. To, to some of the challenges that we're facing here. And particularly this event that we're having on Sunday in Amherst, we're bringing 
um, one of a, a, a close Karuna colleague um, who's an expert in dialogue from Rwanda, Seth Karamage, is coming over to talk about the experience in Rwanda and also currently in Nigeria and really focusing on a new program called the Brave Schools Project that we have just, this is our, it's our first real pro program in the U.S., which stands for um, building resilience um, against violent extremism in schools. And we have, so we have Sam Camera, who's an assistant principal at the Amherst High School, one of the schools involved in this program, going to be talking about what it looks like in that school. So really, the overarching idea is the power of dialogue and, and how it's been used internationally and how we are using it here in this program. So this is going to be this Sunday, June 11th, from 3 o'clock to 4.30. There's going to be light refreshments. It's at Amherst Women's Club. Uh, do people have to register for this? They do not. We said RSVPs would be appreciated, but totally not necessary. So if anybody who's interested and available should just come. Is there a charge for this? Not. No. Okay. No. Free and open to the public, and it really is... The idea is to be engaging and informative um, and hopefully will be of interest uh, to, a, to, a, to a range of people. So talk to us about what's going on in, uh, in Rwanda and in Nigeria um, that uh, the Karuna Center is uh, explaining the power of dialogue is needed in those two right. forums. I mean, it's really the, the focus will be more talking Seth, who is Rwandan. Um, who worked with us in a previous program that's been when closed for for many many years was involved. It was uh, in a in a program that helped uh, after the gen at 20 years after the genocide. We're not we're not the program is actually not going to focus on that at all. But that you since you asked that program helped when people who were perpetrators of the genocide returned to their communities after 20 years. It was the Karuna program was helping basically the reintegration of those people. So you can imagine in, in you know, a lot of small villages, somebody comes back, who's killed your uncle or killed your father? It was helping building that, building like, that like community. Like what we saw that, in South Africa. Same kind of project. Same kind of project, yeah. In Nigeria, I mean, Seth is very involved in the Nigeria program right now, which is this farmer herder project. Which So he'll talk some about that, about how dialogue works in a context like rural Nigeria, very different kind of conflict dynamics. And again, you know, the main thing to say about dialogue is it looks very differently in different in different contexts. Um, so, so the the discussion on Sunday will really talk a bit about that of what dialogue looks like in different contexts. And then I think it's going to be very interesting, particularly for the audience here, to hear Sam uh, talk about what what this project Brave Schools looks like here. I think it's going to be you know particularly relevant because I think if anybody in this area is if you're reading the newspaper, you're aware of the challenges that the country is facing, but certainly the schools, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty overwhelming, the level of challenges, the behavioral issues, you know, particularly post-COVID, um, the rise in violence, which we're seeing, you know, we're seeing across the country. But there's also, there's, there was an interesting, um, a very, really pretty grim study that just came out from the ADL called hate in the Bay State. And, excuse me, anti-defamation like <laughs> I yep. didn't mean to say that. I call hate in the Bay State, in just basically documenting significant rise in, in particularly anti-Semitic um, incidents in the state, extremist propaganda in the state. I mean, so people may or not be aware of that, but... Well, we covered it last week on, on this show, Bill. You did. 
Yeah, we, I, I would be interested to know, the presentations will be by two individuals, one dealing with Rwanda, one dealing with the schools, the overlap being the power and effectiveness of dialogue. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it's a little confusing because Seth is coming from Rwanda. Seth Karamage. Seth Karamage, and he, and he has worked on a Karuna dialogue project in both Rwanda and in Nigeria. Nigeria is what he's been focused on for the last, we're in the fifth year of a project there. So it really will be talking about what dialogue looks like, how it works. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's a short program. It's not going to be a, you know, kind of a PhD thesis. Um, and then what that general process looks like in a Nigeria or a Rwanda. And then Sam, you know, is going to be talking Samantha about camera. Samantha Camera, who is going to be talking about basically what the challenges they are seeing in schools like Amherst Regional High School and Middle School and what this program is doing, which is very different, as you can imagine, than what we're doing in Nigeria. Is the program in the Amherst High School an experimental program, a model program, a prototype, or is it good, something else? <laughs> good question. I would call it a pilot, yes. It is, um, it, there's a, you know, I think there's a lot of perhaps similar kinds of programs in different schools in different areas of the country. It is the first program that Karuna has managed or run in the U.S. Um, and certainly in this area. So it is, it is, it is a first for us. And, you know, we, we certainly see the huge need and demand. These schools are, you know, I would say, you know, I think we know they're under, understaffed, overstretched. And the idea is basically to be providing you know, support to both the staff and the students to, to develop, you know, kind of a more, a more resilient school culture and community. So it is a, it is a pilot and we are learning, you know, we're learning as we go and the hope is to be, to be building on it and, and expanding in future years. So we are talking with Polly Byers, the executive director of the Karuna Center. So just to sum up, the, this seminar, which will be Sunday, June 11th from 3 o'clock to 4.30 at the Amherst Women's Clubs. That's at 35 Triangle Street in Amherst. Um, it's really talking about the power of dialogue. I assume that the word power and dialogue weren't connected accidentally. Is something uh, that you really want to convey. We do. Thank you for that, for that leading question. It really is, it is about the, the power because we have seen amazing results of dial different approaches to dialogue in these very different contexts we've worked in over the years. I mean, it's a simple idea. What is dialogue? It's it's people talking together. Well, so what does that look like? What does it take for there to be a We don't see dialogue? much of it in Congress, do we? we? <laughs> no, we don't. We see the need for dialogue is what we see. And what is one of the root things of an effective dialogue process is trust, is building trust. So that you and I are talking to each other and I actually trust and believe in what you're saying. So it is talking, you know, it, I mean, think of a post-genocidal situation of what that would take to start believing, building trust, building a relationship who's, with somebody who has killed a member of your family. You know, Paula Green, some of, some of the listeners may be aware of an initiative called Hands Across the Hills that Paula Green, the founder of Karuna, initiated, which was bringing... People, people from, from Kentucky. From Kentucky, from sort of coal country, Kentucky, to meet with Leverett, Massachusetts. So you had a very, uh, you know, kind of opposing p 
political positions, brought them together in person. They met here in Leverett, and then the Leverett people went over to Kentucky. So the idea was really sort of bringing together and developing a relationship. So that was, you know, an example of dialogue here in the U.S. Bill. Yeah, Paul Green's one of the most amazing persons I'd ever, ever had the opportunity to meet and to talk with. I, I, I would like to know just a bit more about the Amherst School Program. Is it after school? Is it extracurricular? Is it training for staff, for teachers, for students? Just a bit more about that, if you would, please. Yes, sure. Um, it is, it's a common, we're, we're calling it sort of a whole of school program. So it is both the focus on, and it's actually spanned, it started this calendar year. It's going to go into this, you know, into the fall. So it's going to span two academic years. The initial focus has been on training groups. We're calling them care teams at the different participating schools. So, and that's a range of individuals, some administrators, some, uh, some counselors, SEL uh, advisors, et cetera. So it's training a team of individuals at each school on some of the skills uh, involved in identifying, you know, kids who are at risk potentially of violent extremism um, and tools with how to respond, recognize, respond, and work with them. And we actually have um, two former extremists um, who are who are doing the in the, the training uh, for for the staff. And they were here in person uh, earlier this spring, and they'll be back in the fall. So that is one component that carries through throughout the program is to building the kind of the staff capacity. Um, the other part is working with students um, and getting them engaged sort of proactively in violence prevention. I mean, really, I think, you know, our, our feeling is that it has to be a whole of school community effort. You know, it cannot just be coming from, from the school administration. You have to have students involved. And ideally, you know, you, we'd have families involved. There isn't, there's a lot of, there's not, a, there hasn't been a lot of focus, ability to focus on the family outreach in this um, component. But that is the idea, to really help the schools sub develop systems to better manage and preempt conflict. So, uh, yeah. well, um, we're going to have to leave it there. So one more time, tell folks where they can find out more about it. Tell them uh, how to contact the Karuna Center. Tell them where to go on Sunday. Great. Okay. Thank you again so much for having us. So it is this Sunday, June 11th, 3 o'clock to 4.30. I think the program will start about 3.30. 30, so come beforehand for tea and cookies, um, and it will not last, you know, more than an hour, and it is going to be at the, in Amherst, at the Amherst Women's Club, 35 Triangle Street uh, in Amherst, and if you want more information, just go to our website, which is karunacenter.org, and you will find more information there. Thank you so much, Polly Byers. Very interesting. That's Sunday. It sounds like a wonderful event. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP.
Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. Get takeout. Save 30%. Get candles. Or hit the links. Save 30%. Dog grooming. Outdoor recreation. Burritos. Save 30%. The Shop 30 Store, full-value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On Talk the Talk, and uh, you know this valley, this the hill towns, they are filled with so many talented musicians. It's just we live in this cultural, just wonderland, I think. But none are nicer as human beings and talented than Mary Witt, who's joining us telephonically. Hello, Mary. Nice to hear your voices. Oh, it's nice to hear you. So we ran a little bit long on the previous segment because it was very interesting stuff that we're talking about, the power of dialogue, which I know you appreciate. But So you have an event coming up with the O-Tone Trio. So yes, in Ashfield, Massachusetts. Beautiful Ashfield, Massachusetts. We're going to be in historic town hall on Thursday night. What are you going to be doing? Um, our power trio with uh, me singing and playing bass and then John Caban on guitar and vocals and Ben Cohn piano and vocals. We are doing a dance and concert. We got a grant from the Ashfield Cultural Council. And so at 7 o'clock, there's going to be a half-hour beginner swing dance lesson with the Lindy League of Western Mass. Christine and Mark are fabulous teachers, and they make it really fun and very inclusive. And then we'll play from 7.30 to 9.30, and we'll do a whole mix of swing and soul and blues and Motown. Fun stuff for dancing, whether you want a couple dance, swing dance, or just dance like we did in high school. Mary Witt, whose voice is often described as sultry. I love that. Uh, <laughs> I have to use a definition, a dictionary to find the definition of sultry in the context of oh. But your beautiful voice. So you, uh, the, the Mass Cultural Council funds cities and towns, local and regional cultural councils, exactly. such as the Ashfield one. And uh, exactly. you guys, your trio, your power trio for the O-Tones was chosen to for this particular event. So what do you hope happens other than people enjoy themselves? Is there a message that you want to be delivering on? Well, we're, we're calling this show Music for the Soul, and we're really, it's really just, uh, you know, music for bringing community together. Any age, race, creed, gender, culture, 
cetera, et cetera. You know, we just love reaching out to people through music. I think the power of music is very strong, and I love to sing and play bass, and these two guys are just such good friends of mine and each other, and we have such a good time playing together. It's, it's, uh, it's very uplifting for us and for them, and we love working with the swing dance teachers who really make everyone feel at home. And um, so, it's, you know, it's just a lot of fun, and... We'll do some songs with some good messages, you know, like Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, and, you know, different stuff. But uh, we've got a good mix of music, and they're both incredible soloists, and they also do some backup vocals. And Ben on piano has also been singing some leads. He does a Stevie Wonder tune, Sign Seal Delivered, and Knock on Wood. So anyway, we, we have a good time together. In, in the minute that we have left, Mary Witt, is it easier to make music with people that you really like as a, as a professional musician? Yes. yes. Why? Because it's all about uh, working with people that you like and respect. If you don't like and respect the people that you are surrounded by, uh, life is a lot harder. And, you know, it's also about listening, just like in the real world. Um, we listen to each other and we respect each other and we're open to what the others have to say, whether it's with words or music. So one more time, when is it going to be and where is it going to be? Thursday night, Ashfield Town Hall, 7 o'clock. And you can get tickets at the door that night, or you can get tickets ahead of time at Asheville Hardware Store. There's also a, um, today's Tuesday, right? There's also a swing dance event tonight uh, at the bowling alley in Northampton, and they will also have tickets for sale there. That's really great. It's so great to get yeah. this stuff. Really quickly, we only have 30 seconds, but uh, you're still working with Gospel? Yeah, we have a show coming up on June 14th with Giving Voice with Evelyn Harris of Sweet Honey in the Rock and Ellen Kogan. That's so great. That's if, you haven't, if you haven't seen Giving Voice, yep, if you haven't experienced Porter Giving Felt. Voice, it's time to. I'm only cutting you off because we have to get cut off. This has I been. but we'll have Dear Ella at Green River Festival. That's the next thing. So That's great. Looking forward to that, too. Mary, thank you so Mary Witt of the O-Tones, we're going to uh, thank you for joining us today on Talk the Talk. And remember to this walk This is walk. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org.